Welcome to this installment of Context Clues, where we give you a tapestry of content from previous episodes in hopes that it might create a fuller picture of the new topic at hand. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Our next topic is called the streaking craze, and it will focus on this hugely popular national college prank that flared up like an antique viral sensation in 1974, and what it has to say about one of the most controversial landscapes in American history, the university campus. Just as we see today, colleges have long been places of political action, places where impactful activist groups form and express their opinions loudly and sometimes with some property destruction. This was especially true during a time when many in the mainstream perceived the nation to be crumbling around them, losing their conservative footing in a world very different from their youth in the 1950s. When the streaking craze struck in 1974, huge crowds of young people had been revolting against the Vietnam War and its frightening draft, revolting in the name of black liberation, gay liberation, and feminism, and this had been going on for years. At the time Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal and a massive recession was bearing down on the middle and working class. The liberal youth of the time were accused by the older generation of being raised in a too permissive culture and were looked upon with much recorded disdain. But how on earth does this relate to the college streaking craze of 1974? Well, we'll find out in the next episode, but it all has something to do with nostalgia for a time before the massive cultural and political shifts of the 1960s and early 70s and the protests that shook the sensibilities of those who were used to holding all the power, those who once ruled the school, so to speak. Coming up is an excerpt from our two-part series called Terrorism that set the scene of what the most radical left-wing college groups of the early 1970s were doing and how the mainstream and the authorities that supported them reacted to a new domestic threat that demanded even more change in the name of equal rights. That's coming right after this.
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. Soon, America was awash in the cultural changes of the late 1960s and early 70s, and two major far-left groups emerged as terrorist threats, seemingly reaching for the same goals, but not always seeing eye to eye. These revolutionaries were called the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground, two groups labeled by the government and the media alike as homegrown, militant, hippie terrorists. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California in 1966 after the murder of a young unarmed black man named Matthew Johnson by white police and the black riots that followed after. They saw this anger as a force that could be turned into political power, and they believed the only way to combat the institutional racism of the civil rights era police forces was to arm themselves with rifles and carry them openly through the streets. They watched over police interactions with black folks as an intimidating force, often chanting things like, quote, the revolution has come, time to pick up the gun, off the pigs. Due to these armed revolutionaries, and in stark contrast to today, a law was proposed to actually ban the open carrying of guns. The Black Panthers protested this by showing up at the state capitol with loaded shotguns and rifles. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called the Panthers, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. My name is Kalita Smith. I'm eight and a half years old. I live in Oakland, 
California. I go to school at the Oakland Community Learning Center. My school was started by the Black Panther Party. But this Black Panther Party for Self-Defense wasn't just attempting to intimidate white supremacy. They were also instituting revolutionary programs on the basis of their 10-point plan, which they summarized as, quote, land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. They created the Free Breakfast for Children program after learning that kids who ate breakfast performed better in schools. They fed 20,000 kids in just one school year in order to, quote, shed light on the government's failure to address child poverty and hunger. However, the government instead saw this as a way for Panthers to spread their political propaganda. COINTELPRO was the FBI's collection of tactics to bring down what they considered radical political groups. Out of 290 of COINTELPRO's actions, it's important to note that 245 of them targeted specifically the Black Panther Party. When the volunteerism spread to Chicago, police went as far as breaking into the church where the free breakfast was set to begin the next day, mashing up and actually urinating on all of the children's food. The Chicago Panthers' young chairman, 20-year-old Fred Hampton, attempted to merge their group with a Southside street gang with thousands of members, including other groups of color. This would have effectively doubled the membership of the Black Panther Party. And in order to prevent this, the FBI orchestrated a raid on the apartment where Fred Hampton was living. After an FBI informant drugged him with a dinner that was laced with barbiturates, agents stormed in and killed Fred Hampton as he slept in his bed beside his pregnant wife. Almost 100 shots were fired by police, while only one was shot by the Panthers themselves, which a later investigation proved to be accidental. The next day, authorities held a press conference claiming that they had been attacked by the, quote, violent and extremely vicious Panthers and had acted in self-defense. They were praised for their, quote, remarkable restraint, bravery, and professional discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. The seven surviving members were indicted on charges of attempted murder and armed violence. It was this series of actions that sparked a violent response from another radical group, one known as the Weather Underground, made up of almost all white middle and upper class college students who began bombing cop cars. They were a splinter group of the well-organized movement Students for a Democratic Society. But as the media began publishing graphic photos and videos of the violence in Vietnam, some of the members of the SDS stopped believing in peace. Hello, I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the weatherman underground. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. They said that they wanted to, quote, bring the war home, to force regular Americans to first witness the carnage and then to mobilize against it. 
They also believed that the continued police violence and segregation of people of color begged for immediate and more dramatic action, and they dedicated themselves to the fight for civil rights. They idolized the Black Panthers and spoke openly about the concept that would later develop into what we call white privilege. Their task was simple, overthrow the U.S. government through armed resistance and through terrorist acts, declaring that, quote, white youth must choose sides now. They must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. They encouraged the risking of this white privilege through any means necessary to bring about equality and end the reign of terror against people of color overseas and at home. Quote, we've known that our job is to lead white kids into armed revolution. Tens of thousands have learned that protests and marches don't do it. Revolutionary violence is the only way. But these noble aims didn't always lead to an alliance with the Black Panthers themselves. In a spree of chaos known as the Days of Rage, the Weather Underground smashed windows of businesses, police cars, and homes, some of which belonged to lower middle class families. For multiple days, the Weathermen, as they were sometimes called, battled with police who far outnumbered them while wearing motorcycle and football helmets, injuring more than 20 cops who shot their guns at the rioters and drove squad cars into the mobs. When the Panther 21 were arrested for conspiracy to bomb several police stations and landmarks, for which they were eventually acquitted, by the way, the Weather Underground threw Molotov cocktails at the home of the presiding Supreme Court judge. Black Panther Fred Hampton, who was still alive at the time, called these actions, quote, It's anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. It's customistic in that it's leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call it revolution, and it's nothing but child's play, it's folly. We think these people may be sincere, but they're misguided, they're muddleheads, and they're scatterbrains. It was clear that Fred Hampton and many other Panthers did not like the political climate that the Weathermen were fostering, and he worried that their violence would not affect their white affluent peers, but instead would continue to anger police, who would then take it out on poor black communities. Despite the Panthers' reluctance to align with the Weathermen, it was the death of Fred Hampton that would amp the group up even more as they began to learn haphazardly how to create homemade explosives. The first attempt left three Weather Underground members dead when Terry Robbins, who was not experienced in homemade bombs, accidentally blew up the townhouse they were living in. They had planned to detonate this bomb at a dance being held for local police officers and their dates. After this sudden tragedy, the Weather Underground rethought their violent targeting of police and in addition decided that they didn't want to hurt civilians with their bombs. They began sending ahead warnings 20 minutes before the blasts in order to clear out any people that may be in the buildings. In total, the group would claim responsibility for 25 bombings, including the U.S. State Department, a military center in Oakland, the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the California Attorney General's office, and a New York City police station. They broke famous Harvard professor-turned-acid king Timothy Leary out of prison. They held drug-fueled orgies in living rooms and even in their vans, participating in what they called smash monogamy, believing that possessiveness ran counter to a community-based revolution. Forced sexual encounters were created between all of the members in order to break couples up. 
Wanted posters made by the FBI featuring prominent members of the group were displayed in every post office in the country. But all of this intensity, all of this willingness to commit violence, this enormous wild revolution would prove to be a symptom of youth and the Weather Underground would completely dismantle by the 1980s, with all of the members either landing in prison or splintering off into less radical political organizations. Right smack in the middle of the streaking craze of 1974, just two months before the whole thing dissipated away, a student from the University of California, Berkeley, was kidnapped by a radical leftist group known as the Symbionese Liberation Army. Patty Hearst was the heiress to a fortune created by yellow journalism media mogul William Randolph Hearst. And this group had a plan to use that fortune to fund their increasingly violent revolution. This was a massive story that ran in the background of the naked frolicking that had infected colleges like Berkeley all over the country. There was a grave concern that other typical college students might be radicalized and even hypnotized into a violent left-wing revolution. Now, here's an excerpt from our episode called Mind Control. Just a few years later, the country would encounter another pivotal moment in brainwashing history as reports of a rogue heiress turned brainwashed domestic terrorist flooded the news, showing a photograph of a blonde socialite brandishing an assault rifle. The hunt for her eventually culminating in an L.A. shootout broadcast on live TV. The obvious conclusion is that the Los Angeles police have indeed found the nesting place of uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and there's not much left of it now. There's not much left of it now, Bob. Formed in 1973, the SLA was led by a black man named Donald DeFries, who was a student of the Black Cultural Association while in prison, locked up after a gun battle with police. There he met Berkeley students who were visiting prisoners, mostly white and upper middle class leftists who believed that the revolution must be induced by any means necessary. As their name reflected, they believed in symbiosis and had a lofty goal of uniting all races and genders and creating a union to fight for the causes of feminism, civil rights and against capitalism and fascism. Death to the fascist insect that preys on the life of the people proclaimed their motto. In order to fund their activism, the SLA began robbing banks in the Bay Area as they schemed their big mission to assassinate the California head of state penitentiaries. But fearing that their action could harm inmates, they shifted attention to California's first black superintendent, Marcus Foster, and used bullets tipped with cyanide to murder him. 
Why? Because they mistakenly thought Marcus to be a fascist because he was in the process of mandating ID cards for all students. But in reality, it was Marcus Foster who opposed the implementation of the ID cards. Two SLA members were arrested and convicted. Hoping at first to get their comrades out of prison, they violently kidnapped socialite Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of famous media mogul and cultural architect, the creator of yellow journalism himself, William Randolph Hearst. Unable to negotiate a trade for their friends, they instead demanded the Hearsts provide $400 million toward a Robin Hood-esque goal of feeding thousands on welfare, leading Patty's father to actually set up a program to do just that. In a striking cameo, Jim Jones of Jonestown fame walked in at one point and apparently immediately tried to run the program himself. The Hearsts were not able to cough up $400 million, as they were less exorbitantly wealthy than the SLA assumed. And though this $2 million endeavor to feed the hungry was relatively successful, Patty and DeFries each issued angry communiques calling the effort, quote, a sham, with Patty also announcing that she had willingly pledged herself to the SLA and would now be known as Tanya. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. For those people who still believe that I'm brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death, and that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the people's army. The SLA wanted to hold Patty up as a kind of revolutionary figurehead, and they cased banks for potential heists specifically for their video surveillance systems so they could put the heiress front and center, especially of the now infamous Hibernia Bank robbery of April 1974, in which the SLA stole $10,000 and in which two bystanders were shot. From that heist, we got that famous surveillance picture of Patty Hearst holding the assault rifle, appearing completely complicit in the SLA's action. Some of these bank casings were actually performed by Patty herself, as the notes about bank personnel and bank layout, handwritten in her personal loping private girl school scrawl, would later reveal. At the same time she was casing banks, the FBI was casing her, and after a long year of nothing, they were finally able to locate the SLA's hideout in suburban LA. But Patty wasn't there. In fact, she was with her two original kidnappers hanging out at Disneyland. But Donald DeFries and the other SLA members were not about to let the FBI take them down, and they returned fire, leading to the largest police shootout in American history, culminating with a house fire that killed all seven SLA members present, including DeFries. In September of 1975, after 19 months of traversing the country with the SLA, Patricia Campbell Hurst was tracked down in a San Francisco apartment and arrested on charges of armed robbery. Maintaining her allegiance to the SLA, Patty smiled and raised a clenched fist in apparent solidarity. 
The court proceedings that ensued were called at the time the trial of the century and saw an entirely different Patty Hearst, one who described months of torment at the hands of those she had once called her comrades. She accused them of locking her blindfolded in a closet, sexually assaulting her and threatening her life on multiple occasions, and alluded to being covertly dosed with LSD, all as a means of coercing her into joining their cause. At her trial, Patty was represented by F. Lee Bailey, who also represented O.J. Simpson and Sam Shepard, and was also in the military during the Cold War brainwashing panic. Their defense centered around proving that Patty had been a victim of brainwashing, of Stockholm Syndrome, or POW Survival Syndrome, with Bailey also frequently stating, somewhat inconsistently, that she did only what she needed to do to survive. Apparently, people weren't buying it, especially because it seemed that she had had a consensual relationship with an SLA member and had expressed her love on multiple occasions, especially by keeping a charm that he had given her. It was a bad look for Patty, this rich girl who had joined a leftist army in the midst of all this political domestic terrorism that Americans were freaking out about. Following an unusually short two-month trial and less than a single day of jury deliberation, Patty was found guilty and sentenced to seven years, interestingly, with one juror crying during the verdict. More after this. And now, back to the show. As we will also hear about in our upcoming episode, Streaking's legacy was a part of a long line of innocent college pranks revered by the good old elite college boys of yore. The 1950s were a decade that produced a kind of fluffy obedience and carefree frivolity that was fueled by both a massive economic upswing and the end of the frightening brutality of World War II. Finally, there was a chance, at least for the growing suburban middle class, to focus on raising the next generation with the earliest version of helicopter parenting. This focus on children and teenagers meant that moral panics were popping off everywhere about what these teenagers, who no longer needed to work in factories or prepare for imminent war, were really up to. It's in this context that panty raids made their debut across college campuses, with hordes of young men breaking and entering to steal intimate articles of clothing from the women's dorms. This excerpt from our episode called Teenage Sex should give you a good idea of the invention of the modern teenager, beginning in the 1920s into the 1950s, and the fears that parents were expressing about these young people, many of whom were just about to be cut loose to invent a life of their own away at college. As we'll see, these same college students would eventually grow up to support the streakers of 1974, who reminded them of a far more allegedly innocent time before the political campus 
protests that scared them shitless. Here's a section from our episode, Teenage Sex. As the thousands of teenaged veterans returned as shell-shocked adults from the extreme violence of World War I, the youth heading into the 1920s was profoundly angry with the older generation for creating the hellish reality that so many of their own had been living in. And they showed more distrust, less willingness to simply conform to their parents' wishes. With the sudden economic upturn of the Roaring Twenties, Young people finally had freedom to leave the days of child labor behind, and those that had the means to party certainly did. America soon got to know their very first counterculture, led in part by young girls who had experienced expanded horizons while working as part of the war effort and were much more liberated than anyone had ever seen. Nicknamed flappers, these teenage girls and young women cut their hair short and wore short dresses. They drank, smoked, and danced, and canoodled with boys they were not set to marry. A very different picture from the way young women had acted in the generations before. Almost immediately, these flappers were seen as a brand new national threat. An op-ed from 1922 from a concerned mother claims that these vampire women, which they called vamps, were preying on their good little boys, claiming her son had recently confided, Mother, it is so hard for me to be decent and live up to the standards you have set me, and to always keep in mind the loveliness and purity of girls. How can I do it with this cheek dancing? And if I pull away, they call me a prude. And when I take a girl home, in the way that you have told me is the proper fashion, she is not satisfied and thinks I'm slow. The dances this concerned letter likely referred to were the hip products of jazz, widely called the devil's music, with its unstructured freedom, its beating rhythms and moaning tones, the style it inspired certainly broke social norms. Jazz and swing were the creations of black musicians who played in Prohibition-era mob-run city dance halls to swarms of increasingly white teenagers. Conservatives and aging feminists alike shun these places as dangerous for vulnerable young women, with the president of the General Federation of Women's Clubs stating, as she led her personal crusade against the new culture, that, quote, jazz was originally the accompaniment of the voodoo dance, stimulating half-crazed barbarians to the vilest of deeds. For the first time in U.S. history, both white teenagers and black teenagers were hanging out together in unregulated and, more importantly, unsegregated spaces, much to the true horror of the white parents. Suddenly, new and seriously controversial dances began making the rounds among the white teenagers. The monkey glide, the turkey trot, the grizzly bear, the camel walk, the horse trot, the crab step, the chicken flip, the kangaroo dip, and the bunny hug. These so-called animal dances were accused of being like mating rituals inspired by the primal sexuality of the beasts. Moral crusaders said that they could lead to a barnyard morality, as well as, most horrifyingly to parents, their young white girls and boys landing in the arms of a black teenager. 
These dances, which by our standards are hilariously tame, seriously go watch some videos of them, so scandalized the nation that they were banned from the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Undercover cops in major cities were ordered to revoke licenses from dance halls that were caught allowing the turkey trot. And New York Mayor William Gaynor went as far as to claim that animal dances were like lascivious orgies. That was the tune, How You Gonna Stop Their Pettin' Parties, by Pete Wendling. Parents soon caught on to this other shocking trend that teenagers were calling petting parties, where groups of chums would make out near each other. These petting parties might be formal and planned in someone's basement or parked car, or they could break out randomly at the movie theater, on the sidewalk, or at the beach. These petting parties were chances to explore their own sexuality within the limits imposed by the teens themselves, the number one rule being no sex whatsoever. In the South, they were called necking parties. In the West, mushing parties. Fussing parties in the Midwest, and many flappers called it snuggle pupping and referred to themselves as snuggle pups. As calls to end petting parties were trumpeted in the media, police began responding by throwing ice water on the groups and even began fining teens for spooning. Petting parties, although certainly enjoyed for their physical side, were no doubt also a public display meant to make a statement against the strict Victorian rules regarding dating. Teenage rebellion continued to be fueled by a distaste for their parents' generation as they experienced the hopelessness of the Great Depression and the horror of World War II, until their identity was finally established for good in the late 1940s, as the Teenage Bill of Rights was printed in the New York Times, marking the first public use of the word teenager the first time this new identity became official. Such articles included the right to have a say about his own life, the right to have rules explained, not imposed, the right to be at the romantic age, the right to ask questions, and the right to make mistakes and find out for himself. By this point, almost all teenagers for the first time were enrolled in public high school, a place where they could, together, create their own identity with a large group of their peers, in a place that had previously only been used by those affluent enough to not need the labor of their children. It was also a place that became a kind of political battleground as schools were forced to desegregate, with almost all white parents wholly against the concept of their children and teenagers spending so much time around what they continued to see as a corrupting and sexually dangerous influence. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. Rock and roll was the first type of music specifically marketed to teenagers, as they became the newest obsession of the capitalist machine, and music, movies, cars, and clothes were being pushed to this new favorite consumer, the white suburban teenager with a pocket full of allowance money looking for the next cool thing. Developed out of New Orleans R&B, jazz music, and country and western, black singers like Chuck Berry and Little Richard possessed a nation of screaming fans, many of them young white girls, freaking parents out much the same way that jazz had in the decades before, especially when they found out that the term rock and roll was actually black slang for sex. Teenagers watched live TV through store windows as Elvis Presley put his white face on rock and roll and famously began thrusting his hips. 
outraging parents with blatant and celebratory sexuality that had previously only been seen in black spaces. Now it seemed to have spread to their own innocent suburban sweethearts, and God only knew what its powers could do. Soon, an urban legend got started, likely from the leftover stories of petting parties combined with the daydreams of the hormonal imagination. Parents soon learned of an apparent new high school fad called non-virgin clubs and had actually begun pulling their kids out of class. The stories went that these clubs were full of promiscuous young women who had banded together to seduce teenage boys into at-school orgies. In Memphis, one such group apparently required that each girl have 13 sexual partners before she was allowed to join. Parents claimed the names of each participating teen were placed into a hat and then were drawn at random, forming the sexual pair for that club's meeting. These legends merged with more overt fears of integration when white parents and their kids gossiped about a black man named Sneaky Pete, who apparently gave liquor to and held wild sex parties for teenage white girls in his creepy one-room rundown shack. No evidence of these orgies, whether in classroom or shack, has ever been found. With these early relatives of the Rainbow Party came more rumors from that sex den of high school, ones that would eventually morph into the stories of sex bracelets, alleging that boys were using pull tabs from a soda or beer can to convince girls to sleep with them. The rules of the game said that if the ring of the pull tab was broken, it was worth a kiss, but if it could be removed without breaking it, it was good for sexual intercourse. Thank you for listening to Context Clues. And we'll be back next week with our episode called The Streaking Craze. And let me tell you, it's wild. It's fun. It's pretty shocking. And of course, weird as hell. I would never give you anything else. Looking forward to talking to you then. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to get ad-free early episodes as well as bonus content, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. This episode was edited by Miranda Zickler and co-produced by Riley Swedelius-Smith and co-produced and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. I hope you have a great and not publicly naked week. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com